So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I, I hope you guys are, are all there together. And interestingly, I think it's been uh, uh, interesting. We've seen a bit of a new movement taking place, uh, I would say, in the last number of years. Um, the dad bod movement. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this. It seems like we've been okay now in our society with just kind of letting things go and saying like, you know what, it's time to embrace the dad bod. It's time to just let gravity do its thing, run its course, and just accept it, right? And uh, you see this all around. I, I think I was maybe an early proponent of this, a promoter of that. Uh, but as I look out on the room, I see many of you have beat me to it. But um, <laughs> listen, today we're not going to be talking about the dad bod, but we are going to talk about the God bod, okay? That sounds weird, I know. But Paul, as we continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, where we left off last week, we are looking at Paul, looking to reveal something important about our body, and that our body is meant to be used for the Lord. It is given to us by the Lord, but it's given to us for the Lord as well. And we are meant to honor the Lord and glorify the Lord with our body. You see, what we saw as we were ending last week in verses you know, 9 to 11, Paul has been showing and revealing to the church that sexual immorality specifically is wrong. I mean, he went through a number of different sins there in verses 9 and 10, but sexual immorality was this one sin that he says, this is not something we should be doing. In fact, those that engage in that, he says in verse 9, aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's enough for me to go, okay, those that engage in, in this kind of sin, and, and ultimately sin in general, but don't inherit the kingdom of God, that should be enough for me to go, man, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to avoid that at all costs. But now in the remainder of chapter 6, Paul's going to break this down even more so to show why this is important and, and why what we do in the body ultimately matters to us. So we're going to see, as we break this rest of this chapter down, how the body belongs to the Lord, the body's to be joined to the Lord, and the body is to glorify the Lord. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through these next number of verses here. So right in verse 12, we read this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are, are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Or as he means, I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything. I'm not going to allow anything in my life that's going to take me away from the things of the Lord. Now, regarding these sins that Paul just listed, verses 9 to 11, as we talked about last week, regarding these sins, you see, there were uh, Christians there at Corinth that, or Christians in general, that were beginning in this day to kind of have some different slogans that they would say to kind of excuse themselves to conduct themselves in these sins, to engage in these sins. They would say, oh no, hold on a second now. It's really not that bad if I'm participating in these things because they would say, first of all, all things are lawful for me. They would throw this out as though this was now justification for them to function in these sins. All things are lawful for me. They would say, we've been set free in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. He's made us a new person. We are free in him. Hallelujah. So now I no longer need to restrict myself in any way. All things are lawful for me. This is what they would see, say. And though we know we have liberty, liberty does not give us license to sin. Though we have a wonderful liberty today in Christ, God's law still stands. And we have to recognize that. We are free from sin, but we are not free to sin. And sadly, some Christians blur the lines in that where they begin to think, 
Oh, it's okay. Christ has forgiven me. I'm forgiven. So if I do this, it's no big deal. It's all covered under the blood. We're not free to sin, but we are free from sin. And we are set free so we don't have to continue to sin any longer. So regarding our freedoms and our liberties that we have in Christ today as Christians, there's ultimately two people to consider. Two people to consider. First of all, ourselves, and secondly, others. Ourselves, how so? Well, Paul makes it clear here at the end of verse 12. He says, though I have liberty, though all things are lawful, I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. You see, what Paul wants to show us here is that though you might have freedom to engage in something, and it may not be a sin, if that item or that thing begins to have kind of dominance, mastery, or uh, just captivate you in a way where you are now brought under the power of it, that becomes like sin. It begins to take you away from your devotion and your allegiance to Christ if this thing over here, though it may not be a sin, begins to have power over you. Paul says, I don't want anything because I am free in Christ. I now don't want to allow anything to bring me back under the mastery of the power of because we were under the power of sin, but we've been set free, delivered, so that we do not need to go back under the power of anything, but rather live in the power of Christ to be free from sin. This is what Paul is, is getting at for us. So we need to consider ourselves. Is what you're doing, though it may not be uh, you know, biblically sin, is it, is it leading you down a path that's taking you away from the Lord? Is it having power of you? Consider that. So consider yourself. But then secondly, we need to consider others. How so? Well, we need to be sure that our, the things that we do, that our liberty does not cause another believer to stumble. And Paul's going to address that more so in chapter 10. We'll get to that in a future day, but just a little bit of a preview. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 to 24 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They don't build others up sometimes. Let no one, he says, seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So Paul says, though you might have the freedom in a certain thing, that may not be building others up or edifying others. They might have a real issue in their own conscience with something that you have a liberty to do. And Paul says, you need to consider their well-being and not just your own, right? Like there, there can be those that, have no problem eating at McDonald's, enjoying a good meal there, where others can go, man, that's the worst thing they can do for themselves. Don't they care about their own well-being? Don't they know that's the devil's food? Why would they go to McDonald's? Now, that's not an issue of sin, maybe just stupidity. And, and I say that as a man that enjoys a good meal at McDonald's once in a while. Don't judge me, but I can handle that. But you see, the early church, they were wrestling through some of these matters of food, Right? Paul will bring up, you know, uh, that some Christians had a real problem eating meat that might be offered in the market because they didn't know if that was meat sacrificed to an idol previously. And they thought, was that just left over? Uh, was that served up in a pagan practice and it's just left over? Should I eat that or not? And, and Paul's like, man, have at it. It's all been sanctified in the Lord. But if your conscience tells you otherwise, then, then just stay away from it. And Paul says, if my eating meat is gonna cause another to stumble, then I'm not gonna eat meat ever again. Paul was concerned about others' well-being. Think about the early church in that day when you got Jews getting saved 
And they're coming out of, you know, the restrictions of the law. And now they're being told, like Peter received that vision, all things are, are, are uh, able to be eaten. They're struggling over, you know, eating pork. And they see other Christians now eating pork. And they're like, what is that? Can I do that? Is that an offense to God? Well, no, it's an offense to the pig. But to God, it's all allowed, right? And so, you know, but they needed to balance these things out with what am I comfortable with? And other Christians need to balance it out by saying, am, am, is what I'm doing going to cause another person to get tripped up and to begin to engage in something that to them is sin. If it's sin to you, then it's sin. If your conscience isn't allowed, then it's sin, and, and, and you stay away from it. And so we need to be careful that we're not, you know, flaunting our freedoms in a way that might stumble or trip up other people. So Paul goes on to say in verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So this is, again, Paul is addressing, in verse 9, he addressed various sins of you know, fornication, sexual immorality. He's going to be focusing a bit more on this. And the reason why, this is not just that it you know, uh, restricts you from the kingdom of God, but there's something that it does internally in a, in a very detrimental way. Paul's going to be focusing on this. But again, the first kind of justification the church of Corinth had regarding engaging the sins was all things are lawful for me. But the second one now is right here in verse 13. They would say, listen, food's for the stomach and stomach for the food. These things are just meant to work together. They're all temporal. Ultimately, we have, you know, when we're hungry, we have a drive, and a drive of the appetite to feed ourselves. There's, it's just part of our natural body. It's part of our DNA. So when I'm hungry, I just eat. There's a, there's a hunger drive there. In the same way there's a hunger drive, they would then say, so in the same way, we have a sex drive. And when we have a sex drive, we just need to fulfill that. The body's made for these things. Just as food is made for the stomach, and stomach for the food, the body's a natural you know, link to this sex drive. So it's okay to do it. It's all just kind of temporal. This is what they would say to justify these things. Now, true, the stomach is for food, and God's going to one day do away with the body and its physical cravings. But notice what Paul says, the body was never intended for sexual immorality. The body is not for sexual immorality, says in verse 13. And it was something people in Corinth were having a, a very big, loose view on. They figured that what was done to the body didn't ultimately impact the soul or the spirit. It had no bearing on the relationship with Christ. They thought, this is completely separate. I can entertain the things of the body. It's all passing away. It's separate from my relationship with the Lord, so we can engage in it no problem. It's all just going to take care of itself. But Paul makes it clear that our bodies do matter. Not so much with what we do to our bodies, but what we do with our bodies. Our bodies, he says, very clearly is not to be used for sexual immorality, but they're to be used for the Lord. Our bodies are to be lived in that relationship with the Lord that encompasses every part of what we do. The Lord desires to be a part of us in all things. Paul's going to break that down more so in this chapter that we'll look at. But we're to be pursuing his purposes. We're to be living for his glory and not our own purposes and glory. Paul interestingly would add, he says, not only is our body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. You go, what? How, how does that work? Well, we understand that when we come to Christ, 
Christ is now dwelling in us. Paul would relate this to that great mystery, Colossians 1.27. Not that it was a mystery to be figured out. He was revealing the truth of this mystery. And he says in Colossians 1.27 that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, meaning that we now have Christ abiding in, dwelling in us. This is a wonderful mystery. It's the hope of glory that we are linked to Christ now. And if we're linked to Christ, it means that we shouldn't be linking ourselves with things that are not of Christ. This is where Paul is going here. Romans 12.1 says that you are to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Our bodies are not our own. He's going to break that down for us more. So we'll get to that. But let's be sure that we're not abusing our bodies in a way that will then hinder the work of the Lord, the work that he does in us and through us. Let's be sure that we're walking in that relationship with Jesus, being connected to him. Our bodies are for him. He's for the body. He desires to work in us and use us for his purposes. So our body belongs to the Lord. Secondly, our bodies to be joined to the Lord. Look at verse 14 here. It says, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. See, again, our, our bodies are not our own to do with as we please because God's got a hold of our body and one day he's gonna raise our bodies up. They are God's creation. And one day we're gonna experience new bodies, resurrected bodies, a glorified body. The contrast that's being built here is that God is going to destroy stomach and the food, right? These are our temporal things. We're not going to need those things in eternity. He's going to destroy both stomach and the food, but he's not going to destroy the body. The body's going to be raised up. The body's going to be made new. Our bodies are not temporal like food or the stomach. We're created eternally. Though these bodies are wasting away, they're going to be resurrected and restored one day. Aren't you looking forward to that? There's going to be no more dad bods in heaven. Hallelujah for that. I'm going to have like a seven foot two frame in heaven, let me tell you. My body, and I think like, you know, first shall be last, last shall be first. All of you six feet and over people, you're going to be like five feet two in heaven. I think that's kind of the way it works out. I don't know. I'm not, I can't be dogmatic on that, but I'm, I'm hoping that's how it's going to be. But Paul says, verse 15, do you not know? And remember, he's repeating this phrase several times in chapter six, six times in chapter six, to, to kind of say like, guys, you, you know this, you should know this, but you're not like applying this, not living it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not, he says. Or do you not know, again, that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So as the Corinthians thought that the body was nothing. You could do what you wanted to it. It didn't ultimately matter for eternity. You could satisfy. Paul says, hold on a second now. Wait, pump the brakes here. He says, are you not aware that your bodies are members of Christ? that you are linked to Christ, you are joined to him. And if you're joined to him, then you should not be joining yourself to things that are not of Christ, things of sin. And he mentions a harlot. And you kind of go, wait a second, where did, where, why do you throw a harlot in there? That comes out of left field, it almost seems. But again, Paul's dealing with this area of fornication as, as stemming from verses nine and, and 10. And remember, in this day, this was a real issue that was right before them 
there in Corinth. Because in Corinth sat up on the hill the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. And in that temple, they had a thousand prostitutes, men and women that would offer themselves up for the worship of Aphrodite. And they would do that by coming down into the city at night and availing themselves to the people in the city in sexual acts as a form of worship to Aphrodite. This is what's going on. So the Corinthian believers are seeing this all around them. So Paul uses to say, as a Christian, you should not be engaging in sin. As much as it might be a very ready part of your culture, there's a dynamic at work there that is very, very unhelpful, very bad. See, if a believer went to a prostitute, they were essentially joining Christ with this harlot. As a member of Christ, you can't join with them without bringing Christ into that. See, and then, and then Paul goes all the way back to, to Genesis there in verse 16 to show that the act of sex is two people becoming one. Two people becoming one. That's why it's reserved for marriage. God's not trying to be a killjoy here, guys. God's trying to preserve something that is going to be to your benefit. There's a dynamic that happens in the act of sex that's more than just sex. It's a fusing of two people together, both body, soul, spirit. There is a coming together like nothing else does for two people in the act of sex that fuses you together, brings you together as one flesh. This is an area of intimacy that is so important in the confines of marriage. That's why it's so sad when, when couples, husbands and wives, begin to fight and struggle and they begin to butt heads over things, we get frustrated with one another. This is that one act that typically gets shelved right away. Nobody wants to come together in that way when you're fighting and squabbling, and yet it's this very active intimacy that's meant to bring us together and keep us together. It's very hard to get angry with somebody and to be mad at somebody when you are, you know, together in that intimate way like that. This is something God gives to bring us together. Now, again, I mean, sex is not everything in marriage. In fact, they say that too much sex can create like brain fog and it um what it does is um it no hold on it does uh it causes listen um where okay verse um yeah i think we're verse 16 here we'll stay there um but see paul goes right right into genesis 16 here right uh, or sorry, in verse 16, right back to Genesis. Yeah, we're, no, we're here, we're here. <laughs> Where are we? First Corinthians 6. And, <laughs> oh, pray for me. My wife is gonna kill me today. Um, he goes back to the beginning to show this is what God intends with bringing a husband and a wife together, that they might become, as, and he quotes it, that they might become one flesh. Now, Pryor writes in his commentary, says this, this is the ideal that judges all the rest of Christian sexual ethics in the scriptures. That is what is behind every prohibition in this area. Why should not men sleep with animals? Why is adultery wrong? Why are homosexual practices wrong? Why is premarital intercourse wrong? Simply because there is no true oneness, and therefore there should be no one flesh either. And that is precisely what Paul is arguing here. 
The point is not that some Corinthian Christians was sleeping with a prostitute. Paul could just as easily have said, he who joins himself to the good-looking housewife down the street or she who joins herself to the good-looking athlete down the stairs. He says he, because in Corinth, it was men who tended to have double standards. And he says prostitute, because in Corinth, that was the particular problem. But the true problem was that there was intimacy without intention and there was communion without commitment. This is what God desires in our relationships between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. You can go and say, well, there's a lot of excitement and enjoyment in extramarital sex or premarital sex, but there won't be enrichment. Might be excitement and enjoyment, but there's no enrichment. Warren Wiersbe says, sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it's not his, and he'll have to pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and it collects dividends. Listen, young people who are looking to be married one day, the greatest gift you can bring into your marriage is virginity. Keeping yourself for that one person that you are going to fuse your life together for a lifetime and create a one flesh. When we see the, the danger of this, in fact, I'm going to hold that because we're going to get to it in verse uh, 18, and I totally missed that the last service here. But when you join yourself to something or someone that you should not be joined with, you're creating a bond with that individual. That's why, you know, when Paul uses this word joined in verse 16, that word in the Greek, kaleo, speaks of to glue or cement together. This is a, it meant to be a permanent thing. When you glue or something together, it's like, it's like you have a sheet of plywood. It's made up of layers of wood that are, are, are compressed, glued together. Have you ever tried taking that one layer? You go, this is a little bit too thick. I'm going to just take that top layer off. You ever tried doing that? You're not going to be able to do it without damaging the whole product. And this is what has happened now in this culture we've created where, you know, just go ahead and, and have at it. You can have multiple partners. Premarital sex is okay. You've got to, you know, uh, just experiment and see what, what really works for you. And we've created such a looseness in this. But you, you see those that have given themselves with multiple partners, thinking that this is what's going to satisfy and enrich it has brought loneliness, it's brought emptiness, it's brought depression. The very things that the devil lies, making you think this is what's going to be enjoyable, ends up being to your detriment. Because what happens in sex outside of marriage is you are joining yourself to another and then to another. And in joining yourself, you're not able just to come together and say, oh, it's not really working out, that was, or that was a great one-night stand, I'm gonna just move on now. You are not... You've given yourself. You've given a part of yourself away. That's just why this very act, this very act that's meant to do what? To bring uh, reproduction. You are, are producing a part of yourself and giving it away when you come together with another, when you are joined to another outside of marriage. It's something that God says, this is something I've given to you as a gift to be a blessing to you. But when done outside of marriage, it's going to be to your detriment. But notice he says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
the, the greatest and, and higher union that we get to enjoy now is with the Lord, ultimately. This is the great thing that we don't need to look to other partners to find some kind of fulfillment. We can go to the Lord and be joined to him and be one spirit with him that is going to be to our utmost pleasure and satisfaction. Being one spirit with him means that our spirit should grieve with things that he's grieved over and our spirit rejoices with things that he rejoices over. That we want to be connected to the same things that the Lord is connected with. Be one spirit with him. Be joined to the Lord is what Paul encourages us in. And he says in verse 18, as we see now, first of all, our body belongs to the Lord. Our body is to be joined to the Lord. Now we see how our body is to glorify the Lord. Verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So because of the intimacy that sexual union brings in uniting two people together, and the damage that's done when it's done outside of marriage, we need, as Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. See the harm that this brings. See that there is, is this complete danger in this. And do everything you can to flee from it. Be like Joseph, right? Who's got Potiphar's wife coming at him every day. She's like, come lie with me, come lie with me. And what does Joseph say? He's like, how can I do this sin and sin against God? Joseph wasn't thinking on a horizontal uh, level going, well, what about your husband? What's he going to say? What's he going to do to me? How's this going to look for me? Or what about you? He doesn't look, he goes, this is something that's done against God. How can I do this and sin against God? But what did Joseph do the last time that Potiphar's wife came and said, okay, that's it. Today's the day. I'm not letting you go. She grabs a hold of him. What does he do? He fled. He didn't sit there and be like, well, no, hold on a second. Wait, let's talk this through here. No, he's like, I'm getting out of here. And he leaves his cloak. She, she still grabs all his cloak and he leaves it. That's how we need to respond to temptation, to all things of sexual immorality, things that are of a sexual nature outside of marriage. That can mean pornography. It can mean being in a place that is explicitly, you know, revealing something in this nature. It doesn't have to be the act of the person. It's anything that is of a sexual nature outside of marriage. Flee from it. Run from it. Because the only purpose in those things is to damage you, to, to, to destroy you. That's the enemy's intent. And the only good that comes of anything in sex is how God prescribes it, which is between a man and a woman, biological man and woman, right? Got to be clear on that. And in the boundaries of marriage. That's it. God's not, not saying any of this to rob you of any pleasure. He's doing this to ensure pleasure in your life and in this act that's meant to be a blessing of intimacy with another person in marriage. So flee from these things. Now, notice he says, interestingly, in verse 18, everything that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You kind of go, wait a second. How's that, how does that work? That's kind of a confusing verse because isn't just sin, sin? How is one sin greater than another sin? And I don't think Paul's trying to communicate that, that this sin is greater than other sins. All sin is sin, and causes us to be separated from God. So sin is sin, but what Paul is identifying here is this is a sin that when committed has a greater effect on your personal self. 
on your body. Because like I said, this is a sin that involves the whole person, body, soul, spirit. As you fuse your life together with another person and you break apart from that, you're leaving a part of yourself there. It's like taking a piece of tape. Take a piece of tape and you can stick it here. You can stick it on the floor. You can stick it on somebody's jacket, stick it on the wall. What's going to happen to that tape over a few more times of sticking it somewhere? It's going to lose its stickiness. It's not going to be able to adhere to anything. And that's what we have with such damaged people today, apart from the Lord, who have given themselves over. We have damaged people that can't adhere in relationships any longer. It's not what God intends. And I would implore again, those of you that are looking to get in marriage, those of you that are in marriage, that have struggled with the temptation of adultery or whatever, understand that these things though it might look exciting, is meant to destroy you. Keep yourself, keep yourself in what the Lord has for you. Keep yourself for one person in marriage. Keep yourself in that marriage. Don't allow yourself to get pulled into temptation into something that is meant to destroy you. There's no good that can ever come when you step away from what God's ideal is. Nothing good that'll come of that. And you might think, well, it's okay. No, we love each other. We're gonna get married one day. We're promised to each other. We've got, a, we've got a promise ring. It's okay that we can sleep together now. No, it's not. God says, come together in the commitment of marriage. Don't live together. Don't experiment together in this area of intimacy. Don't even let yourself come close. Protect yourself. And protect this wonderful gift that God's given to ensure a healthy relationship of oneness together. Because he who commits this sin, again, is doing this in a way that affects the whole self. It's not a sin that's just done outwardly. It very much involves the whole person and is a sin that affects the body like no other. Some believe that Paul may have had venereal disease in mind when he talked about this. Because again, here's an act unlike other sin, that can have an immediate consequence to your life physically. In venereal disease, that could eventually cause death, literally and physically. Whatever the case might be, whatever Paul is prescribing here or what he's referencing, we see why God has put restrictions on it. Again, not to take away the pleasure of it, but to ensure the pleasure of it. One young boy asked his grandpa, Grandpa, you know, back in your day, it seemed like nobody was dying from all these different diseases that we see rampant today. What did you guys wear to protect yourself? The grandpa said, a wedding ring. That's what it takes today. Keeping these things for the very means that God has given them to, husband and wife, to be one flesh. Well, it says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your body or in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So Paul says, we're the temple of the spirit. You know, growing up in church, there were certain things that you just didn't do in church. You're like, oh, we're coming to church. God tells, oh man, we gotta be careful that we don't do anything wrong or, or defile anything. You gotta be on your, your best behavior. Do we treat ourselves that way? Do we look at our bodies that way? We're like, oh my goodness, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about the, the temple that 
sat, or the tabernacle sat in the Old Testament days, when priests would go into the temple, they had to, you know, ritually, religiously wash themselves. They had to cleanse themselves. And only the high priest could go into the very Holy of Holies, and then only one day of the year. And again, through much work of sacrifice, sprinkling blood there, washing themselves. It was a big deal to come into the temple of the Lord. But now we have the incredible privilege and blessing of our very lives being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do we treat it in a sacred way? Do we recognize the, how big and serious this is? The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us? Paul would say earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He spoke of that of the church. He says, you together as you gather, you're the very house of God that the, the Lord desires to come and dwell in. But now he takes it one step further and makes it more personal and individualistic. And he says, you are personally, individually, you, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Your body is not given to you to do with it as you wish. Your body is meant to be lit for the glory of God because God through the Spirit has inhabited you, is dwelling in you. Your, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been created for that purpose, but we were created, we were made by God, sin came into the world, we were products of sin, we've, we've rebelled against God, but guess what? He came and redeemed us, he bought us back. Not only were we made by God, but now he has redeemed us. You were bought, it says, at a price. The extravagant, costly price of Jesus' sacrifice. He came to this world on an incredible rescue mission, died on a cross to save you and spare you from that life of sin, from the place you once were, so that you could be redeemed, bought back, and lived to the glory of God. That's what Jesus has done for us. You were bought at a price, so what does Paul say? Then glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's, they're not yours. Your body's not meant for you, your body is meant for God, and to live for his glory and for his pleasure, not your own. And here's the great thing. When you live for the pleasure of God, when you live in the way that you were not only created for, but redeemed for, when you live for the purposes of God to glorify God, that's gonna be to your greatest pleasure because you're living it the way God has intended it to be. He's made you for him. He didn't make you for you. I'm sorry if that burst some bubbles here but we're not our own. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that I live for a greater cause and purpose than me. I get to live for God and to his glory. And there's nothing that brings greater joy and satisfaction in life than doing that which we were created and redeemed for. So let us live to the glory of God in all that we do. Let us use our lives, our bodies, for his pleasure and glory. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for this word and for the instruction of it. These are heavy things to look at, but they're important things. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help those today that are, are struggling with these areas of sin. Let us be those that flee sexual immorality and flee sin in general. Let us see that our lives are yours. We're the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You've given us the, the power and the ability to live for you through your spirit. So 
May we walk in that. May we not live for ourselves, but for you. Let's keep our eyes on you, God. Help us in these things. May we not excuse sin, but may we, as your word says, crucify the flesh, die to self, and live for you and for your glory. Help us, strengthen us in that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Listen, if you're here today or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. Today's the day to be right with God. It's the opportunity we have through that free gift that God gives us. We're saved not by what we do. We're saved by his grace. We're saved by the work Jesus did. Jesus came to this world. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. He died and he rose again, securing life for us. But here's what the Bible says. We need to be born again. We need to turn from our way and our sin and confess that to the Lord, repent of it, turn from it, and turn to Jesus and put our trust in him. And we're not just putting our trust in the fact that there is a God. We're putting trust in the fact that Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sin to provide forgiveness and to bring reconciliation and restoration to make us new, to give us the right standing with God. That's a free gift he gives you, but you need to put your faith and trust in him and in that work. If you have not done that today, I encourage you, put your trust in Jesus today. Call it to him, turn from your sin and ask him to come be your Lord and Savior. When you pray that, he makes you a new creation. Old things have passed away, old all things have become new. Would you do that today if you haven't? If you desire to do that, come and talk to me after the service or just simply pray the prayer, but let me know. Or if you're watching online, Email us to the church if you've done it. We'd love to share more with you and pass the materials on to you to help you in this new life in Christ.